0: We are all born artists and creators, yet slowly but surely our false programming from society, culture, and family takes us down a different path. I was born a spiritual gangster, and the awakened dad is the journey back to myself. My name is Brent Hurd and I've taken the journey of achieving what I thought was success and found myself lying on an operating table facing the edge of life. My mission is to help as many of us reclaim who it is that we truly are and help a hundred million children live out their greatest lives. Join me each Thursday in listening to the stories of those who have made it back to themselves and lived a life of fulfillment and joy. Good morning, good evening, good afternoon. Welcome to The Awakened Dad. We have an amazing guest today. His name is Marcus Startzel. Marcus was actually a boss of mine many, many years ago. Marcus is now the CEO of an e-commerce company called Whitebox. Whitebox is modernizing the way we do e-commerce. He's an amazing leader. He was the chief revenue officer at a company called AppNexus, was the GM of North America of Millennial Media and held positions across the media landscape. Marcus is someone that uh, holds quite an amazing reputation within the media landscape and just an overall amazing guy. We talk about some amazing subjects around leadership, around family, and around the things that are truly important in life. So please welcome Marcus Startzel to The Awakened Dad. Ladies and gentlemen, let's welcome Marcus Startzel, otherwise known as Colonel. And the reason he is known as Colonel is because Marcus Starzl was probably the best boss I have ever had in my career. Now, and the reason I call him Colonel was because he was also, he went to Naval Academy. He was a a Navy officer. We're going to talk about that. But cannot tell you how excited I am to have you on the show. It has been a long time coming. I know I have been asking for quite some time. So welcome to the show.
1: Thanks, Brent. I am a longtime listener of the show and i think you've had other bosses of yours in the past on the show is that right actually no you are the first
0: boss right. that uh, i have had the first boss fantastic. that i have had so like let's kind of kick it off with the whole yeah i mean you are my boss let's let's go into that a little bit so i joined advertising.com i believe it was 2005
1: I would say five or six, something like that, yeah. Two thousand five or six. Do you remember the interview? I remember an ill-fitting suit and a coffee stain, but that's <laughs> probably that's probably about it. So and a vague memory that it happened in Atlanta, Georgia. But that's about all I really remember. <laughs> an ill fitting suit. <laughs> Oh, that's
0: actually pretty funny. That doesn't surprise me. And at the time, you had been with this company, Advertising.com, for how long at the probably time? Probably about
1: three, three or four years, probably by that point. Yep.
0: You Right, because you were there very early. And your boss was a guy by the name of... Don Kennedy. Don Kennedy, who we both know very well. Shout out to Don, if he's one of the one of the listeners. So I joined in 2005 or six and then pretty quickly after that. Yeah. Cause this is a big part of kind of my, my sort of story. After that, I opened the Atlanta offices for advertising.com in, I guess, 2006 or seven.
1: Yeah, I would say probably 2006 or seven. That definitely seems right. 2000, the end of 2007 was my last year at advertising.com. And I feel like we had a, a pretty significant run together before that. So I would say it's probably right. Maybe yeah. even late 2005. Yeah, yeah.
0: And uh, yeah, because actually in 2005, there were a couple of people that moved down to Atlanta from Baltimore to help open the office, namely... Kelly Hogue and Alia Lamborghini, who have gone on to be superstars, as we both All know. All stars. And I also remember a guy that we hired by the name of Michael Watson. Do you recall Michael Watson? I you, do indeed. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, I remember. Yeah. I remember his first day in the office. Actually, he came in the office and he was so excited. We were so excited. He had a huge cup of uh, Starbucks coffee. We had, just had a, we had just gotten a brand new office, brand new carpet, brand new everything, beautiful office. And he's talking, it's his first day, he's a little nervous. And he drops the entire cup of coffee on the carpet.
1: I just never forgot that.
0: Alia, Alia continued to tell me that story
1: over well, and you over. You know, Brent, when yeah. the Navy launches a vessel, they break a bottle of champagne on, on the keel. Yeah. So I think every new venture needs some sort of dramatic drink spilling of some sort. Yeah, so that's, I think it's fine.
0: Yeah, no, that's a good, that's a good point. So, so enough about me. This is not, this is about you, sir. And for the listeners, because it's something I love to do. Marcus has gone on to run multiple companies. Currently the CEO of a company called Whitebox, which is an amazing business within the e-commerce space. And more than anything, uh, honestly, of every person I have worked with in my career, hands down, I have never worked with or for someone who, who had more leadership skills than you. And what I and when I talk about leadership skills, I used to think leader was drive and push and you do this and you do that and sort of that hard old guard of leader. And you were nothing like that. You were actually the opposite, but in some way shape or form you were able to create and build the businesses because you always created and built the people. And for me, as a guy who was, before I came, it was hardcore driven sales guy. It was such a refreshing experience. Some of the things that I learned, one of the things that I even talk about today with whatever I'm doing is even in my family, is ship shipmate self, and I mean, I I talk about that literally within my family that that core principle, and I wanted to talk about that with you because it has stuck with me for so long. It has impacted me throughout my life. And whether you know that or not, I want to understand where that came from. I want to understand how developed within you. Yeah. I'd really like to talk a little bit about that. Yeah,
1: for sure. For sure. Yeah. I mean, I I think just to first say thanks a lot for the the great words about the leadership. It's certainly something that's important to me, something I strive to be. And if you go back not that you want to go back to that interview in Atlanta, you probably got asked a question that I ask every person on every interview I ever do, which is, would you rather lead or would you rather be followed? And there's no right answer. There is the right answer. Everyone has to give their right answer to that, how they answer that question. But it tells me a lot about whether someone sees themselves as the director of what's going on or being in service to the team that follows them. And so I, I think that's that ship, shipmate self is definitely a direct out outsho- shoot from my experience at the Naval Academy and on submarines, and this belief that there has to be something greater then the success of your own personal career to really be able to drive both company and, and leaders forward. And I think you talked about a, a couple folks who we used to work with, who've just gone on to be amazing leaders and, You know, they were amazing leaders the day they showed up before we ever met them. And they are even better leaders today, the experiences that they have. And I think that model of ship that, you know, that when you make a decision, the first thing, the most important thing is that it is the right decision for the ship. And that ship could be your company. That ship could be your family. Each person has to uh, think about what ship means to them in, in the context of life's decisions as they throw things is like first things your way, but in general, like you've got to think about the larger impact that decision could have. And then if you've got a, if you've got yourself focused on the ship and then you've got everyone around you focused on the ship and then they think about each other and then they finally think about themselves, you just have some really high performing teams. And I've been you know, certainly blessed in my experience with being surrounded by some amazing people. Yeah yeah
0: and w- did did you grow up that way? I mean, was that a philosophy that was in your life when you were small when you were a kid?
1: uh certainly not those words for certain uh, I you know the youngest of four, and so in, in many ways, from my perspective the the three older siblings got the first cut of me and then i was left with what was left and so in many ways i was the bottom of the totem pole but if you look at their from their perspective it was completely different where the world revolved around me from their perspective i don't think that we i definitely did not think of ship shipmate self i didn't hear those words until i went to the naval academy my father was a, a marine my brother was a marine officer, went to the naval academy before me, so there was already what I would call a pattern of service. Mm-hmm. The understanding that what we do has to be more about more than just ourselves. And I think the you know very blue collar upbringing. My my dad was a teacher, high school teacher, and my mom worked uh, in a garment factory all through growing up. And so I just think that there was maybe a, a sense of service, but not as distinct as a, a motto or a creed that I think about with uh, shipmate self.
0: Yeah. Was your dad in the, was he in the service when you were a kid or was, when did he serve? Where did he serve also?
1: Yeah. So my dad served in the Marines in the mid fifties, right around the time of the Korean War, went to Paris Island as a recruit. And then it was an airplane mechanic uh, Mm -hmm. stationed out in El Toro, California. And so he was only in for three years, his original enlistment, and then moved back to the Pennsylvania area where I grew up and ultimately met my mom probably two or three years later, settled down and and became a, a teacher. So he was, uh, to, to the day he passed, raising that Marine Corps flag it on the flagpole every morning, like taps mm. faithfully. And then at night in the evening, uh, all the way through, he passed away just a little less than a year ago.
0: Wow. I, yeah. Wow. I, I didn't, I didn't know that. I'm sorry to hear that. And so every day, every morning and every night he would do the flag. Like, was there a flagpole at the house kind of a thing?
1: Yeah. There's a flagpole right on you know, the main road in front of the house that he, he, uh, now that, that was, that was something new after my brother and I were both active in the service. And certainly when my brother was in the Iraq war, mm-hmm. that might have been when it started, but really, I think is just sort of gets back to the, the model of service. And again, being part of something, you know, bigger than just our own individual lives. And I think if you translate that back to, You know, the work I do today or any company nowadays, everybody wants to be part of something that is bigger than they themselves can produce. And they also want to know that they're having a huge impact on that endeavor, the company, the nonprofit, whatever it might be. Because I think that's the, that's a layer of having an impact is something that I, I think we all as humans want to achieve. And no one wants to think that they got up in the morning and went to bed at night and did nothing of consequence all day. So I I think it's, it's really important.
0: Yeah. And when you like going through high school, was it always, I want to go to the Naval Academy. I want to go to the Naval Academy. I want to go to the Naval Academy. Was that just the almost like the framework that was around you as you were growing up?
1: Not at all. Uh, So Again, youngest of four, my brother was the next youngest and he was six years older than me. And so when my brother was a senior in high school, I was in seventh grade. I was 13 or 14 years old and, you know, just so far removed from the maturity level that he was at. And he made the choice to go to the Naval Academy and had graduated before I got out of high school. And even after he had graduated and been a Marine and become a new helicopter pilot and all those amazing things that he did, I was still not convinced that was what I wanted to do mm-hmm. with my life. I think I flirted with a bunch of different like engineering schools and science, STEM-related ideas. And uh, actually, I remember, I remember the exact moment where it clicked in my head when I said, nope, I need to go to the Naval Academy. We were in high school in a football pep rally, and I was on the football team. And you open up every pep rally, national anthem. It was obviously a very solemn moment. And I remember, and there were a bunch of kids in the back who were being knuckleheads and making fun of an anthem and and goofing around uh, during it. And I just remember thinking, here's my brother, Marine, deployed off the coast of Somalia right now, or wherever he was at the time. Who would die for said anthem yeah and how dare someone disrespect it and i think that's when i realized there was a call to service to do something that certainly would be an enormous investment on my part but have just in great returns for me personally as well with the experience and the opportunity and five years later the old, the most senior person awake driving a multi-billion dollar submarine filled with what could have been nuclear warheads and like it definitely was more than a job; it was an adventure. Are yeah. right about that?
0: Yeah, I want to. I want to get into that. So, like, what's the process to get into the Naval Academy? What do you have to do to be accepted? What's what does that look like, or what's even the process
1: to? Do you interview? What is it? What do you do? Yeah, there's a couple of key steps that are the only way you can get in. You have to be accepted, and then you also have to be nominated. And so, the acceptance part is very much dependent on what are your grades, what are your extracurriculars. Much like many colleges, grades are important, but then they look at the whole individual. Navy specifically looks at like leadership roles, team captain roles, things like that or indicators that this is a, a forming leader earlier in their life. And so you get through that process where the Naval Academy says, yes, we accept you. That's only half and probably the less important part of the process. The other process is you actually have to get a nomination from one of your congressmen wow. in, in the state of Pennsylvania. So wow. there's two senators who could nominate you and then my representative. So that is a, a process involved with interviews. And as a, as a young kid going to meet with a Senator, it's pretty I guess, I guess today my view of a senator is quite different than it was back in, in yeah. 1989, but it's pretty daunting going through the process. And again, I remember I had to make a very difficult decision as an as a 18-year-old kid or 19-year-old kid, senior year of football. We made the playoffs for the first time in a long time, and they set up my interview date with the senator for the same day as the playoff football game. Oh. And... I had to make a choice. Do I play this playoff football game with my with my team, who I've obviously worked very hard over the past several years, or do I look to the future and say, I need this appointment from the senator, I need to go? And ultimately, as you might expect, I think most 18-year-old kids would make the decision that I need to go win this football championship and we'll figure out what comes after that. And As you might expect, I, I was allowed to mail in a VHS tape uh, wow. with interview questions. And I did not get the nomination from that Senator. Who wow. Was probably like this kid doesn't even think it's important enough to come, but I did get a nomination. So you've got, you got to get accepted and then you've got to get the nomination. And then the last part of it is an interview with what's called a Navy blue and gold officer, which is a graduate who lives in your area and they just basically make sure they put another set of eyes, someone who's been through the process of like, is this the type of person we think is a good fit? And so You cross those three thresholds and you get offered an appointment to the Naval Academy.
0: And so, Colonel, when you went through the process and then you were accepted and you get to the Naval Academy day one, like, is it like, not shock and awe, but talk to me about the transition from just like normal kid to into the Naval Academy. It must be like shocking to the system, I would imagine.
1: Yeah, it certainly is. And just like everything else in life, everybody uh, takes it just a little bit differently and experiences it a little bit differently based on everything that they've had to live through up until that point. And one of the great values that I had going in there that other kids didn't have is I was 19 the day that I graduated from high school and a few weeks later and started at the Naval Academy. And and there were kids who were still 17 And there's a lot of maturing that happens in those two years. And you definitely walk out of, and again, I had a brother that went there who gave me a great deal of like, this is what's going to happen. He had the perspective of having been through it all. And, you know, just gave me the advice of like, this is all part of uh, a game. It's a very serious game to get you ready to graduate, but just know that there's like, it gets better and, Here's how you might want to approach things. And and I generally have a, as you know, things can probably be worse type of attitude and find the laughter in, in the yeah. in this seriousness when I can. And it really helped me going through the Naval mm. Academy because I, I recognized that we were part of a symphony of like what was going on. And like when someone was yelling at my face and making me do pushups and just being you know, ruthlessly mean to me as part of this basic training Mm. exercise, Uh, I had the perspective of it was going to end in X number of minutes or whatever it might be. And there are other folks who just, you know, took it very seriously and really struggled. And I'm not saying I didn't take it seriously, my training and everything that I went through. I I just knew it was part of a bigger thing, thanks to sort of my innate personality of how I generally deal with things like that. And then my brother's guidance, Uh, And by the way, tons of books, written or probably blog posts now or articles, whatever it might be to help other people through the process as they're about to go into the Naval Academy. My brother's ideas were not groundbreaking, but it was definitely helpful. But it it is a, I was dating my my wife at the time. We had been dating since March of our senior year of high school. And we said goodbye to each other. And other than, first of all, 1990, not a lot of cell phones existed in the world. Thank goodness. Uh, and, and we were allowed an hour on Sundays to use the phone. And so it was, it was a little bit of a shock there. And the communication with all the folks that were important to you kind of just slows down and goes away. But yeah. I mean, it, in many ways, it's preparing you for when you're away from your family for months at a time when yeah. you're on deployment in the Navy.
0: Yeah. Uh, yeah. You've always been. a Yeah. You've always actually had that. Uh, it's funny you say that like this like you never really, you don't really get rattled. Meaning, I mean, you know, even we went through some, we went through some stuff in the sense of just like hitting numbers and like getting down to the weeks and the days of where these numbers felt so important and which they were. And, you know, I even think about like the, when we or maybe you had left when like the whole platform a thing happened at aol like the whole thing got rolled up and and that got kind of intense too but that that's sort of that's such an amazing trait that you have so you go you graduate and then the deal is you have to serve for four years after you graduate five years five years five years right five, five. years
1: depending on what what job you go into so i went to submarines went to nuclear power school it's a five-year commitment for the folks who chose to become pilots. It's seven years after you get your pilot's wings. I mean, there's a significant amount of cost in training a pilot. Mm -hmm. They need them to stick around longer. Yeah. Yeah. So five years.
0: And so then, so you get trained and then what was your role? You were driving the sub. What is that? What was that? You were, what were you, what were you? So
1: I was a junior officer on board the sub and the, the day you show up to a sub You're not qualified to do anything. And your goal when you get to a Navy ship is to get qualified to do something, Mm -hmm. you know, because in general there is an officer on watch who's in charge of whether it's the engine room or the duty officer or whatever it might be. And until you're qualified to do something, you're nothing but an oxygen breather. All you're doing is using the crew's oxygen. You're not giving back in, in any way. And so there's a pretty intensive training process for a junior officer where you start getting qualified in the back end of the submarine, which is you want to be qualified to be engineering officer the watch. So you're the, the individual responsible for the engine room. You've got three amazing operators in front of you operating an electric plant, the nuclear power plant, and the steam plant, all in this little room where again, you're the most senior person awake from midnight to 6am when you're on the midwatch and you've got to be ready mm-hmm. for anything that comes at you and, and to drive the mission of the ship. And so you spend the first six months, let's call it, really getting qualified to be engineering officer of the watch. Once you're qualified engineering officer of the watch, you're then on the watch rotation. You're now no longer just breathing oxygen. You're giving back. And then you spend the rest of your time qualifying submarines, which is really where you create more of the experiences where you're taking the boat to periscope depth. You're understanding more about radio communications, the strategy of the submarine, Basically, first half of the time there, shut up and push. Uh, Rest of the time there, helping driving the tactics and the strategy of the submarine. So Mm -hmm. it's a pretty grueling process. And, you know, just to go back to that last point of sort of not getting rattled, I think there's a portion of that comes from upbringing, what you've been through. My brother and I used to talk about this all the time, why he and I amongst other people in the family just didn't get rattled about things. And he always said, look, I could have got shot down so many times. Do you think I care about this other little thing that Mm. could have happened? And there's probably a bit of perspective there, Mm. but the nuclear Navy, Brent, it does not mess around. Like they teach you, they, they, they ingrain it in your consciousness that there are things that you should pay attention to that are important. And there are things that are not, you should not pay attention to. Everything is done by a procedure. So when I was qualifying for engineering officer the watch, we would go through scenarios where something bad happened to the reactor or a steam leak or something like that, and there's certain immediate actions that you have to take to save the lives on the submarine and and keep the submarine afloat. You have to do them fast. There's no question about it. They, there's three steps you got to take those three steps in the right order. If you delay It's it's doom. But then after you take those three steps, there's a lot of gray area of assessing the situation, understanding the important indications, and there's a procedure to go through. So if it's a situation where you have to scram the reactor, meaning put the rods in the reactor and, and, and start it back up again, there is a set procedure of 27 steps that you go through without any sort of deviation. And all through that process, you've got people yelling at you. They stage these drills so Uh, People come in the room and say things that are essentially like spurious or meant to distract you Mm -hmm. and your job is just not to get distracted. And so I think that's a learned thing, quite frankly, that over time you tend to be attracted to the things that you feel are the most important and you tend to ignore the things you think that don't, which is has its pluses and its minuses, especially if you're wrong about the things that really matter. But I, I think it's a, it is a, it's definitely a part, I think it's all experience and can be taught. Yeah. So, so,
0: so it's almost like the Navy prepared you for business in, in a sense.
1: Oh, definitely. I mean, there's huge learnings there, especially on, you know, the leadership side as well. You step onto a submarine having never understood how to operate a system or how it all works together. And they put you in charge of folks that have sometimes been in the Navy for 20 years that know so much more than you're ever going to learn in your five years in the Navy. And it's a very humbling experience to, to be asked to lead a division where you are not the expert. Yeah. And so there's a lot to learn about leadership when, again, you're hoping that people follow you rather than trying to deliver orders.
0: Yeah. I mean, what would you, like, how would you kind of sum up like the the kind of core, you know, framework of leadership, like as you think about it and as you sort of operate in the world, how do you think about that? Like for just for others, like people who are listening to this, who are either up and coming leaders or people who are wanting to, you know, be leaders. How do you think about it? Because, because, because I don't think there, 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 there's not many people who I personally, who I think about
1: leadership the way that you do i mean i would go back to that first that question i ask every interview candidate would you rather lead or would you rather be followed and i i I think you have to choose i'd rather be followed now there are times when you need to be directive and my current role certainly as a ceo there are times when i need to help people come to the right conclusion and there are times when i just need to say look i think this is right we need to go ahead and do it and that's a struggle every day. But I think first you have to start to want to be followed. And then I Mm -hmm. think if you think about the people that you would follow today, if they gave you some advice, you would be like, yeah, that's some good advice. Mm -hmm. There's a fair amount of competence there. There's a large amount of confidence there. And there's also a large amount more than anything else of trust. So you've got to build trust in the folks below you, which is not just it certainly is doing what you say and helping them and maybe even helping them navigate through challenges of the organization. But you've also got to say to them, here's where you're not doing well. And here's where you could get better. And I may not always be the, the best at that. I think having those types of conversations is definitely, again, something you learn how to do over time. But, you know, I think if, if you want to be a leader, you've got to want to be followed trust, confidence and competence are, it they, have got, they've got to come with it. And yeah, I mean, I've been through times in my career where one of those legs of competence or confidence, and they're obviously very closely connected. I didn't feel the top of my game or I didn't quite have yeah. the knowledge I thought I'd have. And it, it definitely shows in my ability to lead. So yeah, that's how I would approach it. And yeah, There've been a lot of books written on it. I'm not an expert on leadership, but I certainly uh, aspire to be.
0: Well, hopefully we'll be reading one of your books soon. So today you are the CEO of a company called Whitebox, which is a pretty significant, I mean, it's a sizable business and I know how much it's scaling. And obviously I know how big the you know commerce market is. And so there's probably just a tremendous amount of growth and upside in what you're doing. But as a CEO, as a leader, where would you think vulnerability comes in, in the sense of the way that you communicate in the sense of how people are able to talk to you, you know, look, I mean, like the old guard of business and corporation was, you couldn't really talk about much stuff. There's, it feels like that's changing. I mean, obviously that's what I'm interested in, but I'd love your perspective on that.
1: Yeah. I'm going to quote a submarine movie here for you, but you know, the old way of thinking about it, which is sometimes very important, but There's this movie called U-571, and it's a World War II submarine movie starring Matt McConaughey, and John Bon Jovi plays a role in the movie as well, for those who are interested. And there is this point where Matthew McConaughey plays this unlikely now captain of a submarine, and he utters a phrase akin to, I don't know what to do, or I haven't figured out what to do yet, or something like that. And Harvey Keitel, who plays the salty chief, pulls him aside and says, "Don't you ever say that again." This the, this crew on this ship looks up to the, the captain of the ship. He knows all. He speaks with the power of all knowing, all seeing, and you can't put that doubt in the mind of your team. And I and I think that's the old an old way of thinking about it. In a new way, or in a different model, the, the truth is, you know. White Box is is an amazing business. You know, my experience is all advertising and advertising technology. And now this is a very real business where my brands who are selling things via e-commerce rely on me. I literally have their brands in my hands Mm. and my team packaging it up, selling it for them on Amazon, doing the advertising, all that stuff. It's super, super important. And it creates this uh, sense of uh, gravity around the things that we do every day. Not that selling ads doesn't have a gravity. It's just different. And I I think in a startup, you can't possibly be successful if you don't have a senior executive team or a next layer or managers or directors all the way down who quite frankly know more than you Mm. and who are better at their particular job than you could ever be. And I think of my uh, COO right now, who's so so compellingly smart around e-commerce fulfillment, the intersection of how robots and humans, that's not something that I know. And I think there needs to be room for mm-hmm. letting these, these senior leaders and the, the, the folks below them to innovate and create a company that I couldn't do by myself. And mm-hmm. I'm not a founding COO. So I didn't wake up one day with this idea for Whitebox and understand how it all fits together. I came after the fact, and I'm now working with the team and the founding CEO to try to take it to the next level. And you've got to have a certain amount of deference to that. I, a vulnerability, I don't think of it as vulnerability. I think it is reality. None of us have all the answers. None of us are infallible. None of us haven't gone through a situation that tested us emotionally or whatever it might be our entire lives and to pretend otherwise just isn't authentic Mm -hmm. you've got to have that sense of authenticity and if not you'll never get that trust and if you don't get the trust it's a totally different situation but yeah yeah uh, that's how i would think about vulnerability it's a it's a tough (laughs) uh, having a military guy admit to some sort of vulnerability is probably a tough (sighs) sell just given the importance of that word in the military yep. of vernacular, but mm-hmm. I, I agree with the principle. Yeah. Yeah. And as a
0: kid, when you were, let's say teens, as you were thinking about the Naval Academy, was there ever a thought that you were going to be a business guy? Was there ever a thought like, Hey, I'm going to actually, this was kind of my path. Like, was it ever part of the program?
1: You know, I don't think so. I think the, for me, I was just always very interested and very strong in sciences and math. Mm. And I always knew I was going to do something with science and math. So if it wasn't the Naval Academy, you know, it was Carnegie Mellon where I was going to go study physics mm. or something like that. And I honestly don't know where that path would have taken me. But even at the Navy, I, I, I majored, in, majored in math because I didn't know what I wanted to do post Navy. And I thought it was a good foundation. And then When I went to submarines, I went to nuclear engineering school and so continued to double down on the engineering and the technical side of it. And then one day I showed up at a company called advertising.com where I would never use any of it ever again. Mm -hmm. But I think there's some core principles there. And so I don't think I ever saw myself as uh, a business major or finance or economics or any of those things. It's stuff just did not ever interest me. Maybe still doesn't today. I don't know, but it's been a it's been a great fun to lead lead these companies for sure. Yeah,
0: and uh, so Colonel, as people look, I mean, you're I've known you for God. I've known you for a long time. I've known you for almost 20 years, actually. We're getting close almost. to that. Yeah. So as, and actually, and the reason i say saying that, because you're also, you're a guy that, in my opinion, I believe lives life just in a way that it, it, you're grounded, yet you've achieved a lot. You're not done achieving. You're a builder. And these these leadership principles that you apply to business and you apply to life. My, my question, what I'm trying to get to is, is, What are the principles that you actually live your life by? I mean, do you live your life by shipmate self in everything you do, meaning at home, within the family, how you're raising the kids? Like, just talk a little bit about that, if we could.
1: Yeah, sure. I I mean, I don't ship shipmate self is probably as far as I go with regards to strict rules. Uh, you call me Colonel. I was Lieutenant. I don't even know how that ever started, but <laughs> it is what it is. I'm not one of those former military folks that you hear about that gets up every day at five 30, reads the wall street journal, goes and runs, you know, six miles before the, the swim and the bike every morning, and then gets in the office at Eight thirty 30 in the morning has the same cup of coffee. That's, I don't, I'm not that regimented. I don't have that sort of mentality whatsoever. And I would probably sleep in as late as the world would let me, I would guess. But I do think the philosophy is the same. It's not about me. If it's about me, then something is wrong. And, you know, that's not to say that there aren't decisions made for the benefit of my career or things like that. You certainly have to take it all in mind. But I, I think the it all comes back to what your personal priorities are and why you do the things that you do. And I remember uh, when I was getting out of the Navy, there was a a transition course for exiting junior officers And as part of that course, I was able to take uh, Stephen Covey's Seven Habits of Mm. Highly Effective People, which was all the rage in the late 90s. And I don't remember much about that course. First things first, start with the end in mind, maybe a couple of those habits. But what I do remember more than anything is an exercise that we did. And the exercise was the instructor said, okay, get out three pieces of paper. And I want you to write down on these three pieces of paper, the three most important things in your life. It can be anything, just three pieces of paper, three most important things in your life. And I wrote my family for certain as one of the three things that were important to having an impact on those around me was the other thing that was important to me. And it's been so long since I told the story. I don't remember what the third thing was. But the whole point of the exercise was, okay, you have these three pieces of paper. I actually made a mistake. You're only allowed to have two. Mm -hmm. So if you could just rip one of them up and throw it away, do that. And so, as you might expect, what I was left with was the family uh, as the most important thing in my life. And I think that's how I think about Shell Max, MJ and Mitchell and their lives and where they are today. And it's why I do things for sure. And a big part of White Box is absolutely we have this opportunity to be a multi-billion dollar company yeah. and having the opportunity to then help that team, which is not my family, but the that team is a big part of me having an impact yep. and around those around me and job creation and those sorts of things. But in general, I don't have axioms or wards to live by or anything like that outside of work. It's just really you know about those priorities.
0: Yeah, yeah. So well said, well, listen, this has been an absolute pleasure, and I want to thank you for being a part of this. I know it's taken a while to get us situated, but this has been great. Thank you for taking the time and and being on the show.
1: Brent, thank you so much. I appreciate it and uh, you know, call me back if this has like six or seven listeners, and the next one will go over ten..
0: <laughs> I will sure do it. Thank you, sir. Hey, thanks for being with us today and joining me in my mission to help 100 million children live out their greatest life. Make sure you subscribe, rate, and review The Awakened Dad podcast and share with your friends and follow us on Instagram at The Awakened Dad. If you like what you heard today, please make sure to listen to our other episodes and thank you for being with us.